Welcome to Focused on Forward. The purpose of this podcast is to focus on recovery from life situations, be it a disease, chronic or acute, perhaps the loss of someone so dear to you in death, or a change of life patterns that has affected you so profoundly that you have no choice but to find your new normal and become focused on moving forward. Each episode is designed to show the positivity that people bring to each and every one of their stories, the successes they've had, ways that they have become so definitively focused on moving forward. We look forward to sharing their stories, and we hope that they inspire you just as much as they have inspired us. Thanks for listening, and enjoy the show. Hello, everybody, and welcome to a very special live edition of Focused on Forward. I, of course, am your host, Tim, and I am very excited because tonight I have a very special guest host. This is Tommy Eslin from the Curiosity Hour podcast, and, of course, our very special guest, this is Scott Silverman, the family navigator, and uh, he does a lot of really cool things, and we're very excited to have him. Scott is a nationally recognized drug addiction specialist who you may have seen on CNN, CBS, CNBC, 60 Minutes, or heard him on NPR, or heard on his own podcast, Scott Silverman's Happy Hour Podcast. So our hope, absolutely, yeah. So our hope today is to talk to Scott for a few minutes about his background, how he himself became an addict, how he began his journey of being focused on forward uh, in life, and the the steps that he took uh, in order to do that. We also want to hear from you, our viewers, um, those of you who are watching right now. If you have any questions, please feel free to comment in the chat, and we'd love to get them uh, in front of Scott. So, uh, Scott, just to get us off and going, why don't you tell us a little bit about your backstory? How long did you do you have your own battle with addiction, and when did it start in your life, and, and how did you come to terms with it? Wow, that's like 90 minutes right there, Tim. Thanks for kicking that off. Hey, no problem. You know, sometimes we like to lob off the softballs first. Got it. All right. Well, you guys can, you know, go take some dinner and uh, relax. <laughs> take a cool one. So, uh, again, um, I'm Scott H. Silverman, and I, I put my name out there. But there's a guy named Scott Silverman in Japan who gets a lot of my information. And so we've become very close over the years. So I put the H in there so people can find me easily. I grew up here in San Diego. Um family of uh, four kids and my folks and, you know, typical life that most people have. But, but I was just one of those kids that uh, had difficulty in school. Uh, they didn't really have the term ADHD back in those days, but over time I was diagnosed with it. And I, uh, I had a attention span issue. I, I think I still have it or it's come back again. I have about an eight second attention span. So Tim and Tommy, be careful when you generate those questions that I, I respond quickly. Otherwise, you may have to repeat them. You know, I grew up in a family business, so we had this hierarchy and, and busy working all the time. And, and uh, I really found myself, you know, busy most of the time until I got into my teens. And then I, as I started to mature a little bit, I started doing some experimenting with substances and got involved initially with alcohol and grew to marijuana and then did some cocaine and methamphetamine and some hallucinogens and some second all. The poly drug is what they used to call me. And I won't go into a lot of detail about that. My drunkalog, they call it. But I, uh, you know, found it very soothing to take mood-altering chemicals to self-medicate. And I did that from about 14 and a half years old up until 30. And I ended my wow. career of substance abuse uh, with trying to take my own life. And then got into treatment at age 30. So I had about a 15-year career of drinking and using. And now I'm uh, just celebrated this November. Uh, 36 years of continuous sobriety. So I've been uh, sober now twice as long and a half than I was under the influence, which uh, I'm real excited about, proud of, and I work hard, I believe, every day to maintain my sobriety. And I currently work in the field of delivering substance abuse treatment, uh, confidential recovery is the name of the facility here in San Diego. It's an outpatient program, primarily created originally to work with first responders and doctors and lawyers and professionals 
and I uh, I'm passionate about what I do and I do crisis intervention and I'm a family navigator and I love I love that term I coined it a couple years ago others will say it's been around but family navigator is pretty unusual and I know because I locked down the URLs in a couple of different ways and I uh, wake up every day and, and I I'm one of those people that I hope that you know when my when my phone rings it's an unfamiliar number because when I answer it, it's a chance to maybe help somebody get some help and save a life and get them to the highest and best level of care possible. So that that's kind of that brings us to where we are today. And I'm uh, created my own podcast really because of COVID and being at home and I'm learning some of the technical stuff. But it, it gives me a platform to really bring in guests that I think are going to be you know, informational and helpful, because I think the way that we're going to really reduce this stigma around substance abuse and substance use disorders is to talk about it. So I really appreciate the opportunity to be here with you guys, mostly you, Tim. And uh, Tommy, I'll get to know you, I'm sure, as our time goes on here this evening (laughs) and, you know, be a part of and just, you know, be a resource to families. And I'm going to give my phone number out. I know you let me do it at the end. It's uh, for those of you who are sitting near a pencil and paper, please write it down and please call or text me anytime. 619-993-2738, 619-993-2738. 619-993-2738, 619-993-2738, and I really encourage people to reach out. And it doesn't matter where you are in the world, you can call me, and if I can't if I can't help you, I can pretty much help you navigate what next steps look like. So if you know someone who's suffering from substance abuse, drinking, self-medicating, gambling, sex addiction, internet addiction, uh, food issues like that, um, don't hesitate to call. Because right now, according to statistics, 15% of our country is suffering from a problem. And those 15%, because I know I'm one of them, uh, impact seven other people every day negatively. So when you think about it, that's 85% of our country right now. And we are, unfortunately, the leaders in substance use disorders and consumption of mood-altering substances in the world. So anything I can do to be a resource, I want to do that. Excellent. Okay. And as a reminder for those who are watching, if you have questions, please enter them in the chat, in the comments, and uh, we'll be sure to get those on the screen so Scott can answer them. Now, Scott, a couple different areas I saw you referenced online as one area you were referenced as uh, uh, a crisis negotiator, one area you were uh, referenced as an addiction coach, and somewhere else uh, referenced you as an addiction crisis coach. So what's the difference between an addiction coach and addiction crisis coach? Is it just the naming or is there actually something more to that? Well, you know, the the, the term crisis is kind of a broader term, clearly. Uh, addiction is my forte, my specialty, and my passion. So that's kind of where, you know, if somebody's calling me saying, look, I'm having trouble in my garden and I can't get my organic vegetables to grow effectively, I'm not the guy for that. But if you have a family member who's suffering from it or, or you know somebody or work with somebody or, or your neighbor is having a party every night and you don't know what to do, that's the crisis part of it. One of my favorite stories is a, a lovely old lady saw an article I was featured in a couple of years ago and she called me up and she said, oh, I saw the article and you know, I really don't have a drug problem. I'm 84 years old, but I, I want to go lease a car, but I'm really afraid to go in the dealership by myself because I don't want to get taken advantage of. Would you help me with that? And I said, you know, it would be my honor. So we set up a plan and she went into the dealership. She she said when she called, they told me that her lease is going to be $469 a month and something like that. And I said, why at your age would you want to lease a new car and pay that kind of money every month, even if you have a lot of it, especially if you're only driving a couple hundred miles a month. So she said, well, I just, I had my car a long time. I want to get rid of it. And when my grandkids come to visit, I want to be able to drive them a nice car. So she gets to the dealership and she's doing her thing. And she's gets to a point with the sales manager and says, I have, you know, that call a friend. So she called me up and we were talking and I got her a nice lease deal at $175 a month. So she was really happy. The dealership was kind of pissed, but you know, they'll, they'll work through it. You know, they took care of somebody, a senior citizen in our community. So when it comes to crisis, I, I, you know, couples having issues, people that are fighting, siblings don't get along, relationships that are, you know, we're all going through some tough times. I mean, I've been pretty busy this year with the crisis coaching part, but generally when people call me, there's somebody in their family that's suffering from, I call this disease of addiction, and they need some help. And the thing that's fascinating about this disease, you know, it's just like diabetes. You know, some people are born with it, some people aren't. But if you're seeking help, it's really hard to 
make a call to find the right person. You, your general practitioner would usually refer you to a psychologist or a psychiatrist, and you know, and they they do their thing and they're well trained for it. But the other members of the family aren't getting treated. Hence the family navigator, because I think of this as a family disease. So if you're married to someone who's drinking every day and you don't know what to do with them, that's where I can really help be a, a crisis interventionist to talk about the addiction problem. So hence the terms kind of correlate and cross-correlate as well. Okay. Excellent. I, I'm really curious. I've heard you in a couple of dinner, different interviews talk about how the three most difficult words to say are, I need help. And I mean, it rings true. It very much rings true. And yet it is something that unites all of us. Every single human being needs help. And it may be something really simple or it may be something really, really challenging. So why, why is it so hard for us to reach out to people we know love us? We know want to help us. Why is it so hard to, to say, I need help? Well, a couple of things. That's a great question because, you know, I need help. <clears throat> it's so easy to say once you've said it, but if you've not said it, a lot of it's the stigma. I don't want to let somebody know or, or, or have somebody think that I'm weak or I can't manage my life. Uh, the other part of it is the false pride and the ego. And, you know, we have a saying in the program, ego is edging God out. So what happens is, is when we're, you know, when we're in the stuff, in the weeds, it's not easy to think about it. And what's fascinating about this disease of addiction, it's a disease of denial and the inability to feel feelings. So if you don't think you have a problem, but you think other people don't understand you, then you're not about to you know, reveal that you have a problem. So by saying, I need help, you, know, you have a broken arm, it's pretty easy, you're screaming. You know, and even with diabetes, when you, you know, you're suffering every day, you know, you don't understand it, you generally will go to your doctor and your doctor will do some tests and find out, you know, that, you know, through the assessment, you've got a, you know, level of diabetes and you need to treat it. And the, the simple way is to, you know, monitor your insulin level and find ways to, uh, you know, take your insulin and you can live a normal life. And with addiction, same thing, you can get treatment. And you can get into recovery and you can lead a normal life. So I think the false pride, the stigma and ego are the things that really make it hard for most of us to ask for help. It's kind of like, you know, being afraid to be honest. And one of the, you know, the keys I have in my first book is learning how to be comfortable with being uncomfortable. And that's also tough for us as a human race. I mean, for, for most of us guys, it's ego. And for, you know, the other individuals around the world, it's, they want to, they want to help, but don't know how. And again, it's like, I remember over the years, I've talked to businesses all the time and nobody wants to raise their hand and say, we have a problem in our company or our industry is suffering because of uh, alcohol abuse. And, you know, one of the big ones right now in this country is the American Bar Association who self-disclosed that 30% of the lawyers in this country suffer from alcohol abuse. That's a lot. That means one out of three. Wow. And when you think about it, you know, and, and nobody ever wants to admit it. And the way I found out was they had a conference here in San Diego and there was a reporter who happened to be in one of the, you know, presentations and they self-disclosed that and it got printed in the newspaper. Then they got it quoted as, as a bidding that that takes place. But if you know there's a issue going on, in my opinion, then you can work with it. It's what you don't know. You know, I don't know what I don't know. You've heard that statement. So I think that's the, I hope that answers your question, Tommy. So. Okay. All right, great. So we've got some listener questions, uh, ones that were sent in, oops, ones that were sent in to us earlier. Uh, so I'll read the first one here. So Scott, uh, Stacy Skiar wanted to ask, how has quarantine or stay at home, safer at home, how has that impacted meetings or other tools that we use in recovery? If he's, if someone's, if you're participating in meetings online, does, do you feel they're as effective as in-person meetings? Great question. I interesting. You know, the social model of going to meetings is probably one of the most effective ways for people to, you know, journey on with the recovery process. Treatment's different. If you're suffering and you're addicted to some mood altering chemicals, you know, many times you need to go through the detox process, sometimes medically supervised process, sometimes on an outpatient basis. But when it comes to the recovery process, you know, the data shows that that 
piece of getting together with others. And, you know, I've heard some, some anecdotal, you know, studies around the idea that half of the people sitting in a meeting are listening to how bad it is for others. And that inspires them not to go back to where they were, if you will. The other half are there to, you know, to learn to share and be part of. So what's happened that I've seen, and I go to a home group, that was, that's what we call it in, in the anonymous programs, home groups, and the Zoom meetings, you know, I'm ADHD, so being able to see 50 people on a screen is really, it, it, it's great for me because I get a chance to hear a myriad of stories, and, you know, you don't have an excuse. You're sitting at home, you've got your laptop or your phone, you pop it open, and you join a meeting, but what's happened for a lot of people is this isolation piece that's going on is is causing a huge amount of relapse or the outcome of the isolation is uh, causing the relapse. And relapse is something that happens a lot with this disease of addiction, especially for those who go through, you know, a formal treatment process and then don't have any follow-up. That's why the social model pretty much has, has been so successful because you're hopefully engaged on a daily, weekly, monthly basis. So you're kind of hearing the messages over and over again, and you're talking with others, and there's that symbiotic connection with other human beings. What's different about the Zooms is that part of it's lost. So for people who have been engaged in it for a long time, are relapsing and I'm seeing a lot of it. And for newcomers, you know, they don't really know. And the younger people are, you know, they've been on Zoom now for quite some time. And it's, it's, but it's a way to engage and you can Zoom meetings anywhere in the world. And there's meetings around the, the world right now. And you can, you know, just Google it and find out where the meetings are and jump in at any time. And, you know, you can, close off your video so nobody sees you. You don't even have to put your name up there. I see anonymous people all the time. So to me, there's a, there's a, a new trend through Zoom. You know, that in our industry, we call it telehealth. You've all heard of it. So mm -hmm. we're starting to do our treatment now through telehealth because outpatient can be done that way. But a lot of times, you know, I get my crisis calls and I'll do a Zoom meeting with people and they go, why do you want to do that? People may not want to see you. I said, well, I want to kind of watch them. And when I see people, you know, sitting there having a cocktail while we're talking about their treatment and access to recovery, uh, it, it's a real tell. So I can start to, you know, change the way my framing works and, and motivate them maybe to uh, either get to a meeting or get into treatment or come in and talk with us about intake and assessment. And there's treatment for providers all over this country that do that as well. Okay, excellent. And Scott, one of our, our listeners, uh, Melody, Melody Davis, wants to know what you can share about the insidious or important myths about addiction and uh, not um, addiction. Let's stick with that. So what are the, the myths around addiction that people grapple with when they're when they're working on dealing with addiction? Well, there, to me, the, the myth, the, first of all, I think it's a disease and probably about 85% of the planet do as well. And when you think about a disease, uh, it, in other words, let's, let's break it down even more simpler. It's an allergy for me. I'm allergic to things that are mood altering. For example, I never had a beer. I would have a case of beer. And I, when I went to parties, I would drink before I went to parties so it wouldn't look like I was drinking a lot when I was at a party. I couldn't stop that. This maladaptive behavior is not a moral failing. It truly is a disease. And the, you know, the, the frailty around that is some people believe that if you, if you don't pick up a drink, you're not going to have a drinking problem. The problem is I pick up the drink and I couldn't put it down easily. So it took me getting outside help and medically supervised in the beginning and then structured, going to meetings, working on my treatment. You know, and I'm 36 years sober and I'm still going to meetings on a regular basis. And I volunteer and I help others because I don't want to, I don't want to drink again. And, you know, especially at this time right now, you know, I'm, I'm at home, my wife's at home and, you know, we're, we're kind of in each other's face more than we would be normally. She never really drank with me and, but she was, she and I got married my last two years of drinking and using. So, you know, she pulled me out of the car a few times and made a list of people I had to call on Sunday and apologize about my behavior from the night before. So I think that, I hope that answers your question. I think it's just a, an understanding that if you see somebody who's under the influence, you know, most people get angry. Uh, or they feel sorry for them, or they get frustrated, 
or they don't understand. So I think that's part of that myth. You know, why are you drinking? You know, you have a great life. I mean, look at it. The, we just read about the, I can't remember the guy's name that started that company, Zappos. You know, the, the shoe company that was selling shoes, yeah. 46 years old. And, you know, he was huffing, you know, putting uh, compressed air into his body. And that's how he was getting high. It's a very unusual way to do it. And, you know, it, his behavior and his acting out and his, you know, and I just read an article today that he was talking to people as recently as two days before he expired that he really was thinking about getting into treatment. And here's somebody who, who technically from the outside looking in had everything. You know, a multi, I don't know, billionaire, uh, you know, a couple of homes, traveled. Uh, he had a big fan. And I think it was Jewel who actually wrote him a letter and said, you know, I just can't be with you, around you, as a friend. When you're doing this to yourself, what can I do to help? So I think we, we see, we're we seeing it more and more. But because we're talking about it, think about this. Five years ago, we wouldn't be doing this. As soon as five years ago, we wouldn't have been. Uh, so you think back, you know, somebody my age who, you know, got involved with medication and self-medicating back in my, you know, teens in the 60s and 70s with this disease. If I hadn't gotten help, I wouldn't be here talking about it, period. So the fact that we're, you know, stigma, according to the, the science, is one of the biggest barriers. And the, and the stigma around this is, you know, what do I do to help Johnny? You know, how do I help my loved one? Because most people, you know, it's really hard to go on YouTube and find those. And that's one of my dreams. I think you heard me say that the other day, Tim, about how I can create a YouTube channel and and get folks that, that are in recovery to talk about it and use that as their, you know, a tool. And that's what happens with people that I've learned when they get into recovery. They, they have to get rid of some of their old tools and they have to replace them with new ones. And that's not easy to do. And it's hard to do on your own. All right. So now the uh, the next question we have is also from Melody, but she wanted to know, how does embracing discomfort fit into the recovery process and what does that mean? Well, say that first part again. How does embracing discomfort fit into the recovery process and what does that mean? Well, think about this. Uh, you're under the influence, let's say the avid, average addict, okay, is under the influence six, seven hours a day. And then there's a level of impairment that comes after that event. And then there's the waking up, you know, and, and feeling, you know, not like yourself. I'll be as kind as I can now. And you, you want to fix it. So you fix it again. So when you eliminate that, if you think about that many hours each week, you know, let's just say it's seven hours a day. That's 50 hours a week. That's a full-time job. Just being under the influence and preparing for it, planning it. How am I going to get there? How am I going to get home? How am I going to get stuff to my drug dealer? How do I get a hold of this? I want more of that. That takes another 10 or 15 hours a week. So when you add up the hours and then you stop all that behavior, replacing it takes time. I call it living life on life's terms. You need a lot of new tools. So that's the discomfort. And plus, when you're sitting in a meeting, think about this. And I, I get in trouble for saying this, but I'm at a point in my life now that if that's the worst thing that happens to me, I'll take it. When I go to a meeting and I'm going to use myself for example, and I'm, you know, we go around the meetings every morning. When I go, my groups in the morning, 6:45 AM. Cause I like early, I want to get it out of the way. Kind of like some people do with exercise. I haven't got there yet, but I'm addicted to everything else. I introduce myself. I say, hi, I'm Scott. I'm an addict alcoholic. And when I introduce myself that way, and if I'm listening to myself, I'm hearing myself kind of put this, it's, it's a form of negative reinforcement when you think about it, because that's how we're introducing ourselves, kind of like the war on drugs. And when you think about the war on drugs, and you're one of those people that are using those drugs, and you're thinking the world's at war with you, those are not real good, uh, you know, comfort words. They don't really contribute to self-care. So what happens is I think there's this mixed message. And I, I'm, a, I'm on a roll today with this group on Facebook that's talking about medication-assisted treatment, uh, which is you know something we can talk about if you want today or later. And there's a lot of controversy around it because most anonymous programs are abstinence-based. So if you're using heroin, you're doing methamphetamine, and you're drinking, when you come into a meeting, you're supposed to stop all of it when you make the decision, you really want to get help. And if you're smoking marijuana, even though that wasn't normally your drug of choice, and people find out about it, they get upset and they go, you can't be here. So 
part of the anonymity that goes on in the world of recovery, historic recovery, uh, you know, it's not changing because the principles work. But at the end of the day, some people need more support, meaning the level of events that have happened in their life are so unmanageable or so catastrophic or what I call untreated trauma. You need a higher level of care. It's kind of like some of us can, you know, change the oil in our car, but we're not going to pull a clutch out and work on a transmission. You know, some of us can put air in our tires, but we would never rotate our tires. Another example is, you know, if you're overweight and you want to lose weight, most people, when they start thinking about dieting, usually gain more weight. So it's getting those tools, which is why I like the coaching term of what I do is being a resource for people to kind of just, you know, do some you know, good listening. What's that saying? God gave us two ears and one mouth for a reason. So sometimes just being able to listen to somebody can be a big resource for them to get to a level of acceptance and comfortability as well. I think that's a really good analogy as well about with the cars, because now myself, I'm not a mechanically inclined person. Uh, so if I, but I can change the tires and not change the tires. I can check the air in the tires. I can check my oil levels. I could probably change my own oil if I really wanted to. Um, but, you know, you talk about some of those other things. I would ask a friend. I would go looking for help. So it's a really good analogy. I think a very powerful and one that it would probably hit home for a lot of us, helping us to understand the importance of being able to admit that I can't do this without help. I can't do that without help. Um, and maybe even even slightly if we can look at it from that aspect, maybe that helps remove some of that stigma from our own minds that this is so, something. So, so to your point, Tim, what you've just said is we all kind of know how to ask for help for certain things, you know, like our car or, or you know, we need to have the house painted or the roof leaks or, you know, we're just we're struggling with, you know, school or whatever it is. But when it comes to this, because it's been shame based for so long, it's stigmatized. Most people won't ask for help. And by the way, 95% of the phone calls I get for people asking for help, it's not the person who's using and abusing. It's the family member who's being impacted by their behavior. Okay. So, Scott, I kind of want to switch to talking to you about your story um, in this respect. I'm curious, at what point did you recognize that you had gotten far enough along in the recovery process that you were able to help other people. I know that when I, I have a lot of doubt about whether or not I have the authority or the validity to help other people or to speak on the thing that I'm learning about. And so at what point did you recognize that this is a thing that you have come far along enough to be able to do all of the work that you're doing. You know, Tommy, I think it's different for everyone. Um, when I when I got to treatment, I mean, I tried to take my own life on a Friday morning, and I was in treatment the next day. But I'd been seeing a psychiatrist because I I wanted to get rid of the depression so I wouldn't have to drink. So. You know, being a good psychiatrist, he gave me a prescription of something that really enhanced my high when I drank. So, you know, I got more of that. That was great. You know, that saying one's, one's good, a thousand's not enough. I think what, you know, one of the messages that, that I heard in, in the anonymous programs is you must be able to help others. Meaning if you don't give it away, you can't keep it. So for me, it was just, it was kind of baby steps. Uh, and I think I've learned over time because I've had a lot of feedback from others on what's called a hopeless helper. And sometimes I will, and, and a lot of people in the field, and I've met a lot of them, are in recovery. And by taking care of others, this is an interesting fact as well. If I help you guys with your problems, and that's where I spend more of my time, I won't be working on me. So the, the, the concept of self-care, the concept of mindfulness, the, the, the concept of uh, sharing with others has really been something that I got early in my recovery. And as far as I, I was crisis coaching for decades before I formalized it. And then what happened was I, I found, and this is kind of an interesting discovery, by charging people for my time, they listen differently just like you would with your attorney or your accountant or your mechanic. 
So, and I even have people, you know, and one of the things I'm doing, by the way, between now and the end of the year is I'm offering free coaching, you know, 5, 10, 15 minutes if somebody needs it. And when you Google me, I'm not inexpensive for my coaching time, but I, I add up the, the years and the experience that I have that what I can do in an hour with a family, most, I want to say this, but most therapists working with an individual at an hour a week could take months not that I'm any better than they are, but I kind of go to a place that most most licensed professionals can't, won't, or don't. So it's I like to think that my style's different. You know, I, I think of it as unique. Is it more effective than others? I hope so, because I'm looking at the whole family. And generally, therapists, you know, you one will talk to the addict, one will talk to the other family members. So I I think I don't think there was like a a switch that went on at some point. I think it's something I always wanted to do. And then I opened up a nonprofit back in 93 called Second Chance, working with people coming out of jail and prison. So I really, I lo- I've always loved helping others. Once I got past the self-centeredness of my addiction and I, I heard and I listened, I, I volunteered for 20 hours a week for almost five years in my treatment center, you know, just donated my time to be present with others. So I got a chance to learn a lot in a very short period of time, but it takes years to, to create that transformation from, you know, being under the influence, drug seeking, and then stopping and then learning how to live life. And I was 30 when I got sober. So I had a, you know, time to do that. And I made every mistake somebody could possibly make. I mean, I, I lost everything in sobriety, you know, financially and became, you know, almost homeless. Well, I call it homeless. I moved home with my folks and my wife with me. So I've had a lot of experience. And part of what I do now that's different is I can use a lot of that to share with others. And, you know, I, I, I've been called, uh, clairvoyant. I've been called an angel, a mind reader, and I think it's just raw experience. And more importantly, uh, just an uh, innate desire to be of service and help others. Excellent. So we also have a comment here from uh, Melody Davis. And Scott, I think I need you to turn your volume in the background down there a little bit. Okay. Um, it says, thank you for this. I think language is so important. It influences our thinking about ourselves and others so much. Some of the shame-based messaging and support groups for families of those in recovery has bothered me, despite how helpful the groups are. Any thoughts on that, Scott? I think I mentioned that already about the, the shame-based piece of it and how, you know, it, it, it happens in meetings and people can get overly critical. But I, I, I think of a meeting as a resource, a tool. Um, I think that you can also see clinical experts, therapists are out there psychologists, psychiatrists, counselors, and, you know, getting in your own group, finding maybe a group of people, men working with men, women getting together with women and other areas of of specific desires to be with others that are like-minded, not necessarily early in recovery. You want somebody there who's got some maturity and some experience, you know, to guide, if you will. It's just kind of like being a, you know, a, um, somebody who's in training on a, on a construction job, you know, they become a journey person, but in the meantime, they're kind of like an intern learning from somebody else. Okay. okay. And we also have another comment here from uh, the angry Scotsman. He says, we just want to thank us for doing this episode. We're going to pass that along to you as well. So thank you for being here for this. All right. So another question that we had from our, from our, uh, some listeners was the, uh, what they asked you if you could expand on the aspect of saying yes and what that means and why is it so important in the recovery process? Well, you know, I I wrote a book called Tell Me No, I Dare You. And the concept of the book is how to get to yes. And I think yes is real important. You know, knowing how to set boundaries, because I always get comments when I say that, knowing how to say no is important and setting boundaries is important. But yes is, uh, give example. I checked into my treatment center on a Saturday morning they gave me the appropriate medication so I wouldn't go through any major, you know, de- detox or, you know, DTs, they call them. And I went to a meeting and it was a group of men. And the, the midway through the meeting, somebody said, any of you newcomers have any questions? And I remember going, you know, I'm the man, I'm the man, you know, I, I, I was mumbling because I couldn't feel my lips from the meds. And somebody said, well, you need to just take the cotton out of your ears 
and put it in your mouth. And I, I remember it seemed like an hour and a half had gone by <clears throat> and I didn't understand what it meant. And they asked again. And so I got a chance to ask another question. I said, what does that mean? And this guy says, you just need to shut up and listen. And I thought, wow, this is my first meeting I'd ever been to. And that's what the message was, shut up and listen. So it was a great lesson for me to know that I, I knew a lot about drinking and using and abusing, but I knew nothing about recovery. So that's what I did. I started to listen. And that's, I think it's a great tool. You know, okay. we're, we're spending some time talking about the families and how families can help and how they can not help in the process. And one of the things that I was really shocked to learn at a training I went to earlier this year about suicide prevention was that a myth around suicide prevention is that asking somebody, are you contemplating suicide, does not put the thought into their mind. It does not lead to people having suicidal ideation. And so I'm curious if there are other blind spots that you might be able to share with us about trying to help somebody who is struggling with addiction that, you know, we, we stop ourselves from helping them because we have this fear that we're going to do the wrong thing or say the wrong thing. How do we, what, what can you tell us about that? You know, there's, there's three words um, I, I share with families and cause they said, you know, my son's always yelling at me. You know, my daughter's screaming at me, my husband's, you know, or my wife is all. So, what I say is, look, try to bite your tongue and go to the ears and listen. And when they start to yell at you and blame you, because that's what, you know, that's what we do. My attitude is when they're done yelling and they're, you know, and you're, you're kind of composed because you're just listening now. You're not engaging in that. You're not buying into it. You're not putting fuel on the fire. You simply say, tell me more. You know, one of my, one of my favorite stories around uh, suicide <clears throat> was interesting. I was at my office and our head therapist at my agency nonprofit came to me and says, Hey, we have this guy here. It's like five o'clock Friday night. He's really in trouble and he wants to kill himself. I said, well, you're the therapist. Why are you coming to me? He says, well, I, I don't know what to do with them. And, and you know, the psychiatric emergency response team is really busy on Friday nights, you know, covering different parts of town. So, he, he, I said, look, go out and, and ask him how he's feeling and what's going on and then come back if you need me. You know, he comes back in 10 minutes. He goes, I, I'm not getting through to him. Would you mind coming out? So I go out and I see this guy and I sit with him and I said, so what's going on? He goes, I just told that other guy. I said, yeah, but you know, he's a therapist. I'm not a therapist. Talk to me. What's going on anyway? And I recognize this guy and which is unusual, but you know, we're talking and I said, you know, I, I know you. He goes, you don't know me, man. I said, no, I know you. He goes, how do you, you know, effing know me? I said, well, do you ever go to that meeting at Saturday morning in Ocean Beach? He goes, yeah, I do. He goes, I've seen you there. He goes, oh, so you're in the program? I go, yeah, I am. I said, but let, let's talk about you, though. I'd like to ask you to do me a favor. He goes, what's that? I know what you've shared with the therapist and he's concerned about it. And I know you don't want to get the popo involved. So let's not call 911. How about if we do this? Why don't you wait till Monday? And if you think taking your own life is a good idea, let's revisit it. He goes, what? I said, let's reschedule it. Why don't you enjoy the weekend? Come tomorrow morning at the meeting. We'll go to breakfast together. So he comes to the meeting, we went out for coffee, we talked, and he came back Monday, but he was feeling better. He goes, you know, you know what you did that no one else did? I go, what? He goes, you actually listened to me. You didn't want to solve my problem. You just wanted to hear what I had to say. I said, yeah, and it was a lot of BS, wasn't it? He goes, yeah. I was just looking for, you know, I was looking for the easy way out. But, you know, and that was a unique circumstance, but I just, I remember how, um, cool it was to feel that, you know, I met him for coffee the next day and I was just, I was present and I wanted to make myself available. Now, no one take this advice, <laughs> but to answer your question, I think when somebody is really hurting and you can see that, 
you have to sometimes step in and you have to help them make that phone call. You know, especially if someone's talking about it and they're visualizing it and they're saying, you know, I, I don't want to live anymore. You can't take that lightly. I mean, I messed with this guy because I knew who he was, but that's my style. And, you know, I don't think anyone's ever left my office and, and hurt themselves from the event that took place with us. But I kind of know a little bit about it. And I, and I and I shared with him about my experience of taking my own life or attempting to anyway. And he thought that was really cool that we had something that we were bonding on. So when you hear somebody who's really hurting, it's good to be quiet and just listen. And then maybe say to them, look, tell me more. And while they calm down, it, it's kind of like de-escalating, you know, or, or deflecting. But if you don't have skills in doing that, you know, and I've been trained with motivational interviewing, which is a, a concept of communicating. And, you know, and I, I've been working with ex-offenders for so long. I had some, uh, I like to say, customer service skills that most people don't get. I mean, I'm in a classroom with a bunch of people who are on parole and probation. Okay, every day, my job was to open up the day as the boss, kind of come in, set the tone. And when, you know, every month there'd be somebody who comes up, stands up and says, you know, you don't know what we've been through. You don't have any, you, you know, I understand you've never been to jail. And so everything we would do in the classroom was a lesson. So I'd say, why don't you come up here? You know, 50 people in the room. And this guy's all buffed out, tatted up, ready to just break my neck. And I'd smile and I said, you know, the big difference between you and I. And then he'd really get angry. I said, let me tell you what the difference is. The difference between you and I is you got caught. I didn't. So I got lucky because I, you know, I used to be an unlicensed pharmacist. And uh, back in those days, they weren't, you know, <laughs> I had a job and I had a wife and, you know, I, uh, I just, I didn't get caught. So from there, I disarmed him, and we both had a good laugh. And I said, so, you know, look, everyone here wants to help you, but you're going to have to be the one that sits quietly and listens for the first week or two. And then as things make sense, ask your questions. Don't bring your attitude here. We can help you, but you have to help us help you. And that's what I tell people. You have to help others sometimes by helping yourself. One of the toughest lessons for families, to your point, Tommy, is, when there's all the family pointing the finger at Johnny, you know, and they say there's three more pointing back, they're not generally helping. And they're trying to love somebody to wellness. And that's really hard, especially if they're under the influence of something mood altering or if they're, you know, jonesing because they haven't been high in a day or two because they ran out of money. And families don't know how to deal with it. There's no YouTube around that that I've ever seen. And who's skilled as a parent to deal with that? That's not a skill you get. Parenting takes time. And when you're having your, you have your first child, a lot of it's trial and error. And a lot of times you're going back to your parents. And, and if, if you're somebody who's suffered and you're going back to your parents for advice and you've hated your parents for so long for what happened when you were a kid, you're going to repeat it. They, they say that an abuser will, you know, abuse their children until that abuse issue is treated. And that untreated trauma that I mentioned earlier is something that you don't get in the meetings. You should have to talk to a licensed, trained professional. So, uh, and those are all, that's a wonderful answer to that. But uh, also thinking about, too, uh, the time of the year that we're in. Now, um, a couple of our, our I'm going to kind of put a couple of these questions together because a couple of the listeners had similar questions. Um, but we think about the time of year that we're in, uh, just past Thanksgiving. Uh, we're, we're hurtling towards Christmas, uh, New Year's celebrations, all these things. How is that in this time of COVID going to be more difficult for those who are fighting addiction? Uh, the, because there's time that they would typically be able to be around family and, and holidays and things along those lines. How is it that in 2020, a little bit of a different landscape for someone who's fighting for sobriety? Yeah. Don't, don't forget about Hanukkah, Tim. Sometimes you people always forget about us, you know, <laughs> a, name, a, a name like Silverman should have been a tell, but it's okay. <laughs> you know, and our people, we're trained warriors. And I mean, we, 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 we go to night school for that stuff. I think, 
I, I think, and you're right, December, you know, and I don't like to be the bearer of, of, of you know, reality, but somebody's got to say it. December is the highest month of, of people taking their own lives of any other month of the year. And when you factor in what we've all been through this year, um, and I don't care who you are, you know, even if you don't watch the news, you, you're if you're around people, you know, and you hear their attitude and their behavior and their, you know, their their frustration. Um, and there's a lot of that. So around holidays, and you know, people again, they can Google me. I've done a bunch of videos, you know, on interviews and what to do. But simply, if you're going to, if you're new in recovery, and there's a lot of people that are, but most people generally wait till January because, you know, what idiot would get sober around Thanksgiving? I did. <laughs> I'm that guy. And I didn't think about it. I just, I was so sick and tired of being sick and tired. I didn't make a reservation in January. I, I didn't want to live anymore. So I got help. But generally speaking, people that are new in recovery, when they're going into the holiday season, if you're going into an environment you're uncomfortable with, or you think you might be, but you want to be with those individuals, but you know, we're hearing right now from, well, what is it? 64% of the country don't be around family unless you're in that <clears throat> original bubble just because of what's going on with COVID. But the pressure is on right now. And if you're lonely and you want to be with others, make phone calls. You know, I was talking to somebody the other day and we were chatting about this, you know, they miss your parents. Well, they're gone. I miss my parents. They're, you know, they, they, were, they passed away years ago. Well, write a letter to them, you know, journal a little bit. So you calm down and then maybe call your sibling whoever else is going to be there and, and talk to them about how you're feeling and see what they think they may say look don't worry about it this year you know with covid and everything else why don't we we'll plan to zoom christmas eve you know or or christmas day we'll set up a time by the fire and if you're you know more comfortable coming during the early morning hours come by and visit then but be very strategic make informed decisions by talking to others about it and, you know, you can go online and Google, you know, early recovery holiday time or being with the family during holiday time. And, you know, who's not having political conversations now? And my God, those aren't going well for anybody. I don't care what side of the aisle you're on, you know. No, that's, a, line, still, that's a landmine. You know, we're, we're uh, you know, we're hearing from people that still, in my opinion, believe that, you know, the COVID's political. I don't get that, but. You know, but I'm also, you know, quarantined at home because I'm at a high risk age, even though I don't have any underlying issues that I'm aware of other than, you know, pre-existing mental health conditions that have all been, I believe, treated, but they can flare up at any time. So just be careful, be informed, go listen. And you know what? If you normally go spend the whole day, just take an hour and say, I'm going to be there for an hour. And if that works out, take another hour. Don't overcommit. And, but don't, underutilize family, friends, and communicating with others. That's important. So Scott, kind of an abrupt, so Scott, of an abrupt transition, but I'm curious if you can tell me, tell us, what gives your life a feeling of, of bliss? What makes you feel alive? This, this does, Tommy, to be honest. You know, I, um, I don't, I'm not a clinician. I don't know if I've said that yet. And I just presented at an international conference and they kept calling me Dr. Silverman. And I, I kept putting in the chat, I'm not a doctor, you know, I don't have malpractice insurance. Don't call me a doctor because I know I'll get sued. And, you know, people all the time, they say to me, you know, you need to have more patience. And if I said I wanted more patience, I would have become a doctor. So, you know, um, two weeks ago, I was asked by the, participants in our treatment center, if I would come in on a Zoom, you know, just talk about why I started Confidence Recovery and why I'm a crisis coach. <clears throat> and I spent an hour answering a bunch of questions from people. And I got to tell you, for two days, I was just glowing. That, that for me was bliss. I mean, for, for, for in, in this field or, you know, bubble that I'm in, in recovery and helping others, you know, my wife and I, we promise each other each day we're going to go for a walk and we don't. And then we have a, you know, cinnamon roll. So those, those are blissful moments. I, I think knowing that I can help others and I'm willing to help others, and I, I don't say no to that, I, I sleep at night when I hit my pillow much better. And, then when, I, and when I hear people talk about when they've, you know, the last year or two of drinking and using, 
I don't talk about that much because I let others do that in meetings. I go there for, I like to help people with learning how to live life on life's terms and knowing that, you know what, I don't care how bad things are for people. What I suggest they do is you can't change yesterday. I tell families that all the time. You cannot change what Johnny did three years ago or six years ago. Or when you tell me he was the child that, you know, always beat up his sister. Well, you know, Johnny's 43 now and his sister's 47. They're not doing that anymore. So let's not hold that against him. But bear in mind that if that behavior contributed to what was going on with Johnny over time, Johnny has to get with professionals to work on that. They, they call it, it's untreated trauma. And what that means is something catastrophic happened in somebody's life and they never really processed it. So it just kind of sits in the brain in this little metal box and it never comes out. And there are techniques to help people. EMDR is one of them. You know, hypnosis can help. Um, sometimes people need to take medication to deal with anxiety, depression, or other things. And they need to talk to experts. I mean, I'm a firm believer one size does not fit all. I actually... For every five phone calls I get, I refer three people out who I know where I'm going to refer them is going to do a better job at what it is I think they said they need or want or desire or should have. And that, you know, people say you're pushing business away. No, I'm not. I'm giving people what I think they need. And when they get there, if it doesn't work out, they can always call me back. That's why I, I mix my coaching with the treatment side. So, yeah, we have a small outpatient boutique program, but and that works for some people, but not for everybody. Some people need to go inpatient. Some people just really need, you know, to see a psychiatrist and better understand what's going on. Some people say, well, all I, I need is a meeting. I said, okay, if that's working for you, go for it. All right. And uh, so I have a question that I like to ask every single guest that's been on every episode of Focused on Forward so far. And so, Scott, I'd like to ask you this question. Looking back over the course of your life story, What's the one shining star of information that you have learned? What's your best takeaway? Learning how to learning how to love myself by processing how I did that by learning from others. Meaning I believe if I stay teachable, there's nothing I can't do. And I think by doing that, not only am I a better person, but I'm a better person with my family, <clears throat> with my friends. I'll give you an example. Staying open to feedback, being willing. I mean, and I do it all the time. I ask people, hey, do you mind if I give you a suggestion? Because I just want their permission. And the reason I want their permission is if what they hear from me, they don't like Nothing they can do about it because they gave me their permission. And a couple of weeks ago, we had a little blow up in our family. I have two daughters and my wife and I were, were all together for, um, I don't know what it was, but a couple of weeks ago before Thanksgiving. And I said something to my wife and my daughter got pissed. And then she got, got upset with me. So an hour went by. I went for a walk, forced me to go for a walk. And I came back and my wife says, why don't we have a family meeting? Okay. So we all sat around and we, we shared about what's going on while the you know, pressure bus pipes. So I, and I, we've all been together since then a couple of times. And what's interesting is looking around, I've changed my, my attitude and my behavior more than all three of them put together. And how do I know that? Because I was kind of the target, you know, You've been like this. They actually said it. You've been like this since you lost your mom and dad. And I thought that was interesting. So I really spent a week thinking about it. And I can't say that they're wrong. So I took it to heart. So that makes me teachable. And I think by being teachable and being willing, uh, I can work on me. And when I stop that, that's when, you know, when things get a little squirrely. So I don't know if I've answered your question or not. No, I think you did. I, I think that's a, I think that's a great answer. Really, um, you know, because that answer is going to be highly personable to uh, every single person as they come into this and what they're dealing with and, 
and what their life lessons have taught them. So I think for you and your story, I think that's a, a you know a very appropriate answer and a very good answer. So Scott, before we we end the show, we do want to ask you to let our listeners, our, our viewers know, first of all, about the book that you're coming out with, about other the other book you've written, and then give you an opportunity to share that phone number again with our with our listeners, because obviously this is a passion. This is a, a true part of your heart, and we want to let our viewers know that. So, yeah. yeah. And I, you know, I'd like to say, I'd like to drink from a fire hose. So if I get a hundred phone calls tomorrow from your, your listeners and viewers, it would be awesome. Uh, Scott H. Silverman's my name. Your crisis coach, yourcrisiscoach.com is my website. And you can see my new book cover there. It's called, you know, the uh, opioid epidemic. And it's a, it's a book full of stories from different families, Johnny, the Jimmy's, the Susie's, the moms, the, <clears throat> the Tim and Tommy's. So I'm hoping it'll be a great, great resource and tools so people can pick up. And hopefully if all goes well, the book will be out in late February, early March. And my phone number again is 619-993-2738, 619-993-2738. And I really dare people to call me or text me. I really do. So I look forward to hearing from you. And I don't care where you are in the country. But if, but if you call me at four in the morning, and I don't pick up the phone. Um, and what I'll do for the next week or so is I'll forward all those calls that come in because I can do it on my phone to Tim and Tommy. So that way, you know, be much later in the morning for them. But I really, I really want you to know that if you're sitting at home, or on or in your car, or you're at your office, and you're hearing my voice and you think you're alone, you're not. And if nobody is that they love you, I love you. Oh, that's excellent. So, uh, yeah. And guys, if you haven't caught on yet, that this is not just something that, that Scott says, uh, this is not the first time I've heard Scott speak. Um, he is just as, uh, it's just as heartfelt. Uh, tonight, as it was the other times I've heard him, please, if you if you have any questions, concerns, comments uh, about addiction, sobriety, anything along those lines, if you need help, somebody to listen to you, Scott will listen to you. Of that much, I am certain uh, at this time. So uh, please uh, look into Scott. Go to yourcrisiscoach.com. You can find information about him there. You can find information about his books, the things that he's doing. And we strongly encourage you to, um, you know, look into him and what he's doing and, and, and follow him uh, on social media. I know he's got a couple different, he's got a Twitter handle out there as well. And uh, when this, this goes out, we'll make sure that that, that gets, uh, gets out there as well. But uh, Scott, I want to thank you for being part of our, our live show. Our, our Actually, our very first live show, first video podcast for Focused On Forward. So you're breaking all kinds of ground tonight. So, yeah, plus I, I did my hair for you and I made it shower day because I know that's going to be important to your guests. <laughs> well, you, you look pretty. <laughs> Thank you, man. So, uh, but we want to make sure that, uh, you know, every, anybody who's watching, listening, um, please go find Scott's contact information, follow him. Uh, I believe you, you mentioned your podcast earlier. Wanted to give out the name of the podcast as well? Yeah, if you Google Scott H. Silverman, it should pop up, but it's uh, Scott H. Silverman's Happy Hour. And the name was pretty much created because I, I well, I'm Jewish and it was two for one hour. So there you go. Okay, I, it, it was organic. I couldn't help that. It just you know it was a reflex and happy hour because I worked hard and I wanted to and I wanted to party hard and I wanted to get home before the CHP because I knew when their work shift shifted. So I knew I'd I'd have that thirty minute window where they're you know I wouldn't they wouldn't be on the freeway with me you know even though they were out there it's different today with sobriety checkpoint so you know if nothing else today just take care of yourself be safe wear a mask practice social distancing and have a great holiday and you know I'm I'm quarantined at home so call me email me text me see me on social media and let's talk about it I mean that's uh, I love it when I get a phone call I really do. I mean, if you're shit-faced, sorry, but if you're under the influence, um, I may ask to reschedule the call. But, you know, but who knows? Your story may be a good one. I'll put my 
phone on mute and I'll just listen to you and I'll turn off the news for half an hour and that'll be diversion therapy. So you never know how you can actually help somebody else. Tommy, you ask that sometimes by calling somebody with your own problems, you put them on mute and listen and go, Oh my God, I'm not that person. You know, I didn't just sell my boat and, you know, gamble a half a million dollars away and woke up and didn't know where I was. And I'm thinking, well, I'm grateful because that ain't me, you know? All right. So yeah, guys, be sure to go to any of the, the major podcast destinations. You'll find Scott Silverman's happy hour there. You'll find Tommy and his co-host Dan for the curiosity hour podcast. I cannot recommend their, their podcast enough. Uh, please go check them out. And of course, you can find Focused on Forward on all those same favorite podcast destinations. Before we leave, though, we have one more comment. Uh, Michelle Joy says, as the family member of several people who have addictions, thank you. As well as someone who struggles with mental health, thank you. So, Michelle, thank you for your comment. We're, we're glad you were able to watch and participate tonight. Uh, thank you. Uh, so, guys, don't forget to subscribe. Listen to these other great podcasts. And uh, any parting comments before we conclude this? I just want to encourage people to stay safe and know that there's help and hope and treatment and recovery is possible. If I can do it, you can do it. And if you're not sure how to do it, reach out to somebody close. There's somebody there that cares about you and wants to be a resource. Excellent. I think that's a great note to end on. All right, guys, thank you so much. This has been another episode of Focused on Forward. Enjoy your evening. Well, that concludes another episode of Focused on Forward. To be a guest of Focused on Forward, you can reach us through Twitter at podcastfof, through our Facebook page named Focused on Forward, or through email focusedonforward at gmail.com. We look forward to hearing each and every one of your stories that has yet to be told. So until then, be safe, be kind, and be loving to one another as you stay focused on forward.